Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Debatable. It's just Kyle this time because Nina is getting her booster shot and that's a very important thing. Like if you have the opportunity to get vaccinated or to get the booster shot, I highly recommend that you do it because it's, you know, very important for us to get back to where we were before the pandemic. But anyway, joining me today is our motion contributor for the art motion set in Debatable Open 2022, Charlie Vito. We have had Charlie on the podcast multiple times before, actually just once, about the wrestling episode, and we introduced them again in the Debate the Beans episode. But here we're going to talk about the motions for Debatable Open 2022. For those who have not met you yet, Charlie, how would you introduce yourself to them? Hi, um, I'm Charlie. So I'm mostly just active here in PDU. I occasionally judge for tournaments abroad. I guess like for the most part, I'm just either coaching, debating, or judging. Outside of the debate context though, I am a film major at De La Salle College of St. Benilde. That's all to know about me. Why do you particularly like art motions? Because I feel like there might be some set of people who like art, but not necessarily art motions. So like there are some people who like economics, but not debating econ motions or they like the law, but not like debating law motions, stuff like that. So why do you like art motions in particular? Yeah, honestly, I totally get that where you can be passionate about art, but then you're not very good at art motions. Like I, I feel that way about like many social movements motions. Like I love them, but for some reason, I don't have a good track record in them because it's difficult for me to get creative. Um, but for art motions in particular, I think like it's the total opposite for me where I just put myself in the mindset that art is a constant. So it's just that idea where wherever you look, there will be art around you. Um, even like math will be considered a form of art for some people. And there are like entire college courses about that. And so, yeah, just because like there's art wherever you look, that also means that many, many art debates will exist. And what I tried to do for this motion set in particular was to not have the traditional art motions that we usually see, since like sometimes motions can be repetitive across tournaments. So yeah, I guess I just like tried to introduce a new um, aspect of art as well. And I hope that's something that people like do take into account as well, that there's always a newer aspect of an art motion, regardless of how many times you've seen it. Let's move on straight into the discussion about the motions. The first motion is about anti-art, which is basically stuff that people make either as an output or people do as a performance to either reject previous forms of art or just reject art in general. And this motion is about whether anti-art is actually a form of art. You gave some examples of rejecting previous art in the motion itself. One is LHOQ, where Duchamp just printed a postcard of Mona Lisa and drew a mustache on it. Could you tell us a bit more about how that act of just printing a postcard, putting a mustache over it, serves as a rejection for previous forms of art? All right. So I guess like for that example specifically, it's just the fact that whenever we're taught about art, or at the very least art history, we imagine portraits such as the Mona Lisa, or let's say artists along that line as well, such as Van Gogh um, and like a bunch of other people. And from there, I guess it's just safe to say that when you have these artworks, which gain so much popularity and are very much praised, even if they are embracing traditional beauty standards, what the mustache does is that they're trying to redefine that artwork and saying that it can still be beautiful, um, even if it doesn't confine to the traditional beauty standards that you have. Or it can also be to say that you just want people or like the consumers of this art to realize that this artwork is flawed because it looks so perfect, but at the same time, it causes so much harm to everyone else. And that's what the mustache does. So when you're trying to reject previous forms of art, you're basically saying like, this is what we consider art to be. And this isn't like the correct way for us to appreciate these types of things. Or can you also say that when you, you're doing anti-art, you're saying that art is meaningless, for example, is that something that you can do as an anti-artist? 
Um, yeah, I think both of those are very possible. So it's either one, you question the existing definitions of art. Um, so that's probably a bunch of callouts. I could say art is centric to Europe or centric to the West in particular. Um, so that's one aspect of art. But the second aspect of anti-art is that you just question what art is for. So this is what you mentioned. So a lot of the time, it's just a bunch of stuff like, is art supposed to have deep meaning in them? Is art supposed to have a purpose, um, etc.? And there are a lot of like artworks which do question that. And I think that they gain a lot of popularity, but people don't realize that they're anti-art. So going back to Ducamp, he also made the um, the fountain, which is literally just like a porcelain urinal or a por um, porcelain like toilet, actually. Um, so yeah, like a lot of these artworks gain attention, but they don't necessarily have like deep meaning behind them sometimes. And that's what anti-art also tries to prove. This motion is interesting to me because, as you said, a lot of them become very popular. And it's interesting to me because we can quite clearly see a rise in anti-art. Like, the trend is going up today. And this is true in many different fields. Like, even in rap, for example, Lil Dicky, he makes songs that poke fun of the entire rap industry. He actually branded himself as anti-rap. I listened to that song earlier, by the way. He said, many fans of rap think that the anti-rap is ironically one of the real brands of rap left. I feel like more and more people are sort of resonating with anti-art in general. So my question is, why do you think that there is this sort of rise in anti-art and rejecting what came before instead of accepting it and then building on it? Well, firstly, I guess it's just like, it becomes a rise. So here we're focusing specifically on the rise and not like the concept itself, where a lot of the time people do feel like they aren't able to relate to art. But the reason why the trend becomes more popular is because they see prominent artists doing it as well. So that's why, um, and again, I guess we're referring back to the same example of Marcel Ducamp. Um, it was their artworks which do inspire other people to go by that as well, since a lot of the time it's difficult for people, especially those without minorities, as without platforms rather, or those part of minorities to like um, just oppose the majority belief. And a lot of the time there are concerns with that, like let's say, um, perhaps it won't um, be that impactful, perhaps it will get a lot of negative criticism, uh, etc. So from there, I guess it's just like following in the footsteps of other people and realizing that you are welcome to do it. But second, I guess just like popular forms of art um, as well, just actively remind people that they aren't being included. So from there, I guess the more that there is popular forms of art that confine to these beauty standards, the more people are incentivized to opt into anti-art. I think moving on to like the meat and potatoes of the debate, what's unique about this motion is that it could have been a, like this house supports anti-art or something like that. But instead, the way that it's worded is this house believes that anti-art is a form of art. So in other words, it's about what should be considered art in general. It's about definitions. How should teams try to define art on each side if they want to be strategic about it? This is like the part where I'm quite excited to explain this part, actually. There are just like many ways to answer the question of what is art. And I think what people have tried to do in the past is already just like propose different concepts. And some of these concepts are more popular than the other. And I think for Gov, what concept or theory would be um, in their best interest is perhaps the cognitive theory. So it implies that art reflects the complex thoughts of an artist. And from there, anti-art also requires creative input from the artist and presents their, um, you know, stances against just the majority belief of what art is. So from there, it's similar to how the mustache was drawn in the Mona Lisa. I guess it's just cognitive theory where it reflects what the artist believes. And that is why anti-art is art on government. For all, there is a definition for art where art has no stable definition at all. So this entails that if anti-art rejects all the definitions that we are familiar with in the past or in the present, then, you know, since it's rejecting all definitions, then there is no reason for it to be defined as art in and of itself. 
So yeah, I guess that's just like the general stances and definitions for governor. Yeah, so I suppose on opposition, what you'd want to say is we can't consider it as a form of art because if we consider it a form of art, then you're just boxing. You're creating a new box for anti-art, the same kinds of boxes that anti-art wanted to destroy in the first place. But I think what's difficult about this debate is you have to talk about why your definition of art on government or your standard for what anti-art is is more valid than the other. Like you have to engage that. So could you tell us about some ways that teams can engage with these different definitions? For example, how would government say that, you know, how would government respond to the idea on opposition that anti-art should not be containable in any particular category or box? The response to how art shouldn't be containable or limited is just question how people will consume it. And perhaps ask yourself, does art really have value if, for one, it doesn't reach much people, or if it creates significant harm to other people as well, or if it just isn't relatable to the other people? So if it isn't relatable, will people be willing to interpret it? Will people be willing to give it a platform, etc.? So yeah, I think that's just like a bunch of questions to ask. Most of it revolve around the idea of how does art affect the rest of the world? Yeah, speaking of that, how art affects the rest of the world, are there pragmatic arguments available here for either side or is it just, you know, a purely value judgment definitional debate? Okay. I think that there are two pragmatic arguments on government, so I guess we can start with that. The first thing is that it requires creative skill and input from the artist. So other examples of anti-art, and these are like broader examples and not the very, very specific pieces from the artists, are, let's say, monochrome paintings instead of, um, you know, using colored ones, or perhaps frameless frames, where you'd see modern museums where it's just an empty picture frame. And I think from here, just the way this argument goes is to say that it is difficult to create art that impacts the world despite having things like, let's say, minimal input, or even if it is just a mustache drawn on an artwork, there is like significant meaning behind it. And all of these constitute as creative input since um, art isn't necessarily dependent on how much skill you have, but rather how much creative thought you put into it. I guess the way you conclude this argument is to say that the definition of art varies. So going back to Fountain, it's just a porcelain urinal, but it's highly regarded in the modern art industry. Another argument for the pragmatic benefits on government is to say that it resembles the artist. So things like, let's say, a bunch of things that we talked about cognitive theory. Um, from there, I guess like just a few trade-offs you can do on government is to say that even if it is just a single theory, it is equally as valuable to all other theories of art. Like the counterpart or the opposition of cognitive theory would be death of the author, for example, which implies that the art and the artist should be separate. So admittedly, um, I think like a lot of things have to be debated on in this motion specifically. Like how do you interpret art? What is art in general? Should the art and the artist be separate? And yeah, concluding the second argument, I think it's just to say that an artist entails that an artwork exists. And it's just the same reason that we don't consider religious doctrines such as the Bible, for example, to be a form of art because we don't know the artist, regardless of how many versions of it are written. It's probably just revisions in the language, etc. But there's no artist behind it. So these are just like a bunch of questions in terms of like proving that this is a form of art. Um, so yeah, like I guess that's what I would run on Gov. For op in particular, I guess we could just balance it out with two arguments as well. For one, is what we discussed a while ago, that it opposes previous and existing definitions of art. And how that goes is just to say that anti-art entails either rejecting art in as a whole, or it believes that art is like, not universal, but rather centric to privileged regions of the world, such as Europe, the United States, etc. So yeah, and given that these are the only definitions of art that are accepted or that most people are familiar with, insofar as you're actively trying to reject that definition, then there's no reason for you to be um, categorized as a form of art. 
And the last thing I'd run an opt then is that it does not require creative skill or input. So this is a direct rebuttal to the first argument um, that we posited on Gov, where on opt, the way you would oppose that is to say that a large portion of anti-art embodies either minimal input or just minimal thought. So how does that look like? And this is like no offense to um, anti-artists, but rather just like in terms of how it works. So this is the reason why a lot of anti-art vandalizes existing forms of art, um, the example being the mustache, or perhaps leaving picture frames empty, etc. And while this is creative, um, it doesn't necessarily embody like um, skill, or at the very least, it is very dependent on the skill of other artists as well, where you're vandalizing what they have made. But that's precisely the reason why your art, that your anti-art rather, becomes very impactful. So yeah, a lot of the impact of anti-art is dependent on the impact of um, like universal artists that confine to the standard. So yeah, that's what I would run it off. Yeah, I think that those arguments are really cool, especially I can imagine in a debate, debaters would bring up those ideas and then the debate would become about, well, does art really require some level of skill? Like if it does not require skill, is it not art anymore? Those kinds of deeper, more messy conversations that will absolutely just derail the episode. So I, I'm looking forward <laughs> to listing um, how teams actually handle this motion because it's it's deceptively complicated, right? It does not look that difficult but then when you're actually debating it there are so many pandora's boxes that you could possibly open right which i think this is a good time to move on to the next motion because the next motion isn't going to be that complicated i think like it's not so much about what art is but rather about what art says the second motion is about regretting art that depicts the rich to be charitable so i guess the first question i have is are there examples of these depictions that you had in mind when you crafted this motion or are there common themes that can be found in these depictions in general? Honestly, what inspired the motion was all the motions that talk about how the poor are depicted. And I think like um, in those motions, we realized that there was a time where um, I think very, very back in the day, being poor was depicted as a sin or an outcome of a mistake that you might have made in your previous life because more conservative times would have believed this. Or perhaps some people still continue to believe that being poor is self-inflicted, that it's an outcome of laziness. That's why we have um, a bunch of works that, um, from, let's say, Jose Rizal, which try to disprove the quote-unquote indolence of Filipinos as um, directly stated in the book. Um, however, I think in more recent times, and this is why instead of discussing how the poor are depicted, we now discuss why the, how the rich are depicted, is where the more modern artworks will depict the idea of poverty as something that is humble. So it's artworks like El Aguador de Seville, which translate to the, um, the water boy in Seville, um, means that this artwork, which depicts a boy in a low paying job, but still being satisfied um, with his life, um, shows that it's humility and it is something to be praised. So yeah, I guess from there, it's just asking the question of now that we know how um, poverty is depicted over generations, how is um, wealth now depicted in current times? And I think just like an example of this would be the portrait of Sir Francis Ford's children giving a coin to a beggar boy. Um, it's a very intuitive title. I think from there, even without seeing um, the portrait, you know what it features. It's basically a rich family, both the parents and the children um, donating their wealth or just like coins out of their pockets to someone who needs it more. And these artworks are generally praised, um, but the criticism against it is that isn't, it isn't the majority of instances. So yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about so like the help. Like remember the help that movie though. It was like oh, there are some nice slave owners, and then you go like yeah, <laughs> um, that's not the kind of angle that would be the most productive because it does not really reflect the most you know the majority of cases. 
where slaves were not treated that well. So I guess the question I have now is what harms can government run in this debate? Like other than, you know, it makes it look like it's the majority of cases when it's actually not. What other harms can government run in the debate? Like um, how do they prove the influence of artwork to the masses that might be deemed negative, those kinds of things? I think the main thing to run on the government is that it's an illegitimate depiction as a whole and um, just decreases attention on the real life issues that we have, especially in terms of things like capitalism um, or like the unreachable standard of employment, perhaps, or just like the inflations of goods and services, um, all of those things. And a lot of people believe that this is rooted in just like, um, you know, the rich getting richer and stuff and the poor getting poorer. So from there, I feel like a lot of these arguments that you would have found yourself arguing in, let's say, economics motions or business ethics motions um, would factor into this debate as well. Because admittedly, when art is consumed that much and you have art that justifies um, this rhetoric, then yeah, basically it strays away from those issues and just depicting to be good people and assume that it is good that they are earning a sum of money or at the very least it's justified for them to earn this sum of money because they're able to give it back to other people nonetheless. Um, and given that art is a major platform for, let's say, empowerment for other people as well, um, I guess there are arguments to say that it shouldn't be um, depicting this type of art, especially when it's inaccurate. So perhaps there's also discussion about the moral obligation of art um, to people who are, like, let's say, um, you know, disenfranchised, to people who do not have their own platforms. So, yeah. Yeah. So I like the idea that you shouldn't depict inaccurate stuff and pretend that it's what's happening. But I think on opposition, I think you have to do two things. One, argue that these depictions are valuable in and of themselves, like they're legitimate. Like even if they might be inaccurate, it's possible that what they're trying to say is this is what the world should look like. Like um, Scrooge McDuck, what's his name? Ebenezer Scrooge. The whole point of A Christmas Carol is to say that this is not how many rich people behave, but this is how they should behave. They should be more charitable. So that's one. Um, depictions are valuable in and of themselves. But the second thing is argue that these benefits outweigh the harms that they pose, if any. So for the first one, how would you go about arguing that, that they're valuable in and of themselves? So I think there are honestly um, two directions that this can go. And I think that these directions cannot coexist with each other. So if a team is an op, they have to choose one between the other. The first thing that they can choose is to say that this form of art is accurate, not in all instances, but in some instances, wherein they say that... Um, there are rich philanthropists that are able to donate to other people, and therefore this art is justified. Um, I honestly think that that proves the justification at best, but not necessarily why the benefits outweigh the harms. So the other direction you could opt to go to um, is to say that the art does not have an obligation to be accurate. And I guess there's, this is probably like the more compelling way to prove it. So for one, I think it can be argued that several forms of art are not realistic either. Like a few decades after the realism movement, which like tried to focus on what status quo looks like, you then see the surrealism movement, which is literally dependent on the depiction of spirits and heavens and dreams and stuff. And all of these things are unrealistic. Or perhaps in more modern day examples of like, let's say fiction, you see, you see things like, um, you know, Marvel, DC, Harry Potter, Twilight, all of those things. Um, none of these are realistic at all, but they're all very valid and accepted. Um, like concepts of art. So insofar as that is the case, like you should be able to apply the same thing to art that depicts the rich to be charitable, that it doesn't have to be realistic for the majority or it doesn't have to be realistic at all. So yeah, I think that's just the, um, tying back to the whole what is art for um, like discussion also happens in this motion. So yeah, um, I guess that's what I'd run. For the next part of all, you have to argue that the benefits of these depictions outweigh the harms. 
one way to do that, I think, is to say we would be in a worse place if these depictions didn't exist. Like in regrets motions in general, you have to compare it to a world where the thing that you're regretting did not exist, right? So how would you argue that? How would the world without these depictions be a worse world than the one that we live in now? Two things, actually, and I think these are quite interesting. The first thing, oh, by the way, this is probably like the more of the extension part. I wouldn't necessarily say that these are the most intuitive arguments to run in this debate if and if um, the debaters of Debatable Open are listening. Uh, but the first thing I'd run is that it strengthens like just capitalism in art or just like um, the, the rich being able to dominate in art. So the main mechanism here is to say that a lot of the time powerful individuals depict themselves to be good people um and it's very similar to how propaganda um works where propaganda often comes from powerful bodies a lot of the time if a um more middle class person as compared to the upper class person wouldn't necessarily um reach much much people if they were to produce their own type of propaganda since a lot of the time you have to have a certain level of power for this to be um able to influence people um, in your form of art. But second is that even if the presented content is true in some instances, it's just the fact that its depiction is biased to a specific perspective. And again, it's very similar to how propaganda works because propaganda implies that it's information being presented to you, but from the scope of a, sorry, from the lens of a specific actor. So from here, it's just a bunch of arguments as to why um, manipulativeness in art is bad, um, etc. The second thing I would say that you can also say in office is say that it appeals to the rich more. Um, and these are inherently good things, especially since a lot of the things that factor into creative industries are art galleries or let's say art being a luxury good for the rich. Um, and I guess I just want to run through how that works quite briefly. So the first thing is that it's important to ensure that art does not isolate the rich. And as much as that like sounds controversial to claim, it's just the fact that a lot of the time the development of creative industries um, is from art being a luxury good to the rich. So that means that a lot of the time, it's an alternative to currency where it's much easier to trade and gain an income from art because you don't have to, um, let's say, do all the conversion um, in finances thing, all the taxes, etc. So that's why a lot of people are willing to purchase expensive art and trade them to other people. So that's the first thing. But second, it's just like showing to them that investing into this art is very much worth it, um, regardless of how expensive it is or regardless of it just being another artwork. So yeah, and then all the arguments as well about how funding for the arts is good. And in particular, state funding is more likely um, to be granted if it caters to the majority of people rather than a specific sector or rather than just like a single minority. So from there, I guess like all the benefits of state funding, such as one, more platform for the artists, but two, when you receive state funding that also legitimizes your artwork, um, regardless of like how um, unpopular the belief might be. So yeah, and a lot of the time when like states fund art, it's not like for specific artworks, but rather like for specific industries or specific organizations. So even in the instance of this artwork in and of itself, which depicts the rich to be charitable is inaccurate and should not be the majority art consumed. If there are like other institutions involved um, in that artwork or just like other institutions which support that artwork, a lot of the time it would be those institutions which receive this funding as well. So yeah, I think there's like a lot of extensive stuff as well as to how um, these things are um, good. Like for one, art as a luxury good, um, or two, like art as propaganda and stuff. So yeah, I don't know. Like, I think it's extensive. So yeah. Yeah, it did seem quite extensive. So now I'm wondering, is government that extensive as well? Like what extensions could you run on government on the other hand? Okay. Um, I guess like the first thing that I'd run on government is just in terms of what is the likelihood of it working. So this is where we just tie back to the question of who are the people who are going to consume this art. So I assume that at the point in time where you publish this form of art, 
um, it's probably still the rich who are going to favor it, but a lot of the time it's the poor who will like, um, or at the very least, like the average person rather, who would, um, you know, be at the brunt of it. And just like all the reasons as to why that is bad. Like for one, how does it affect their workplace? Or two, how will it affect other artists in the future when artists are trying to um, like revolt against popular standards, but yet you are um, constantly trying to like battle the rise of artworks, which depict the rich to be good. So yeah, from there, I guess like there are also extensions on Gov about how it will limit the growth of like the art industry as a whole in terms of what art can come out in the future, um, or also just like your freedom as an artist today. So yeah, I guess those are just like two things that you can run on Gov. Yeah, I guess the next thing that we can do, we can finally move on to the last motion, which is about whether we should support Hollywood remakes of foreign films. And can I just say, I really like the diversity in the motion set because, as I said, the first motion was about what art is or what should be. The second motion was about what art says. And now the third one, it's about how art is made. But anyway, could you give us examples of these foreign language films that Hollywood wants to remake? Uh, thank you, by the way. I think that means a lot like to hear from you guys. Um, but for the example, I would say like we can refer to Martin Scorsese's um the Departed, which won an Oscar for Best Picture and another Oscar for Best Director in the year that it was released. Um, and this film was basically a remake of the 2002 Hong Kong film, which is called Infernal Affairs, uh, not to be mistaken by other films entitled Internal Affairs. So this one's Infernal Affairs, um, which didn't get any international recognition. I think at most it just got nominations for local awards in Hong Kong. Honestly, I'm not entirely sure if it even won the awards that it was nominated for. But yeah, just for a quick background, the remake was basically um, one, more successful given what we just mentioned, but two is that it had like much more known faces like Leonardo DiCaprio and Matt Damon were all starring in the film. So from there already, like that is almost guaranteed to have a large following compared to the original film, which barely got the recognition that it deserved. Actually, yeah, I, I do. I've, I haven't watched either of them, but I do remember like we have a DVD of Infernal Affairs. So that I was like, that's very familiar to me. I, I just didn't know where it came from. But I did know both of these facts separately. I just didn't know that they were like <laughs> together. It's so weird. But anyway, yeah. So the main actor in this motion is Hollywood in general. It might not be like Scorsese or any other particular director individually, but it's about Hollywood as a machine. So I think any debate about this topic would be incomplete if we didn't have a good discussion about who Hollywood is or how Hollywood actually works. Because that could inform a lot of things like intent, what the remakes will focus on. Will it just remove a lot of these cultural things if, if you're adapting something from another country, for example, or specific to a certain culture, stuff like that. So on government, my question is, how would you characterize Hollywood? Like, make them look like a good guy. Like, it's not that bad like that. <laughs> um, two things on government. The first thing is that Hollywood has the largest audience for films and television. So, and this also just like ranges around the world. So this entails a much like larger platform for these stories to be told. And even just like having more connections with like, let's say the best actors and filmmakers. And I think a way that this could be framed as well is to say that Hollywood is the way it is um, because of how great it is, like all the actors that are there, um, it's difficult for, um, let's say, independent films to be able to hire such great actors um, who are probably the most credible in, like, in some standards, um, like to participate in their films. So yeah, I guess that's the first thing to define in government. But second is that in terms of their intention, I guess government can say that Hollywood wants foreign films with potential. So some of these um, have complex storylines, which are probably only understandable to the local people in that country. And to an extent, 
when you manipulate these films for these remakes, um, they become more consumable to like, I guess just like the universal like point of view. So yeah, I guess like from there, that's the intention that government wants to frame, regardless of like profit or regardless of like what it's for. It's just to say that Hollywood will open you to a lot of opportunities, will have access to the best production um, companies and like best actors and directors and stuff, which will all benefit the film at the end of the day. Yeah, so for government, you want to say that, look, they, they might not be perfect, but they have the most resources to make the best product possible or to make the best piece of art that you can make given this particular scenario or this like scene or whatever. But on the other hand, I think opposition can characterize Hollywood as something that you can't necessarily trust, especially with foreign films, which need, sometimes actually need cultural representation, faithful adaptation, stuff like that. So on opposition, how would you go about framing that, especially that relationship between Hollywood and the foreign films that they're adapting? I think opposition like has to be very hardline about how they frame Hollywood. They can say that it is profit-driven. Um, some people will say that Hollywood is overrated. Um, even if you have connections to the popular artists, a lot of the time, the popular artists aren't actually the best artists. Um, they can also say that it's centric to the Western standard as well. Um, and I think from there, they just talk about how this affects the remakes and how they are written. Um, for example, how does a white producer want it? Or how does a producer who is probably rich and not able to experience these problems themselves able to um, present this in the sets, in the props, or even the writers and directors? As for um, the actors as well, Hollywood will heavily affect how these actors are casted. So perhaps, like let's say, if you are going to cast an LGBT uh, character, a lot of the time these characters are not members of the community, or whenever they are members of the community, they still fulfill like the popular standards. Like a lot of the time, these are um, conventionally attractive white men, etc. As compared to just like the rest of um, like you know the community who won't necessarily um, appeal to traditional beauty standards. And all of these just like revolve around Hollywood because when you like connect all of these characterizations together, like let's say having the connection to the um, let's say most popular people, but also being profit driven, it is precisely you wanting to stick to that specifically. Um, that restricts you from like branching out. And even if people will say that, oh, if we can just implement new stuff, like let's say um, only casting LGBT people for LGBT roles, or perhaps um, having more cultural diversity in the people that we cast, um, a lot of the time, like these are true, but I do think it's like already quite far-fetched from the debate. Um, but I do feel like a lot of the time, given how powerful Hollywood is, the control or like the freedom you would have to be able to do that is still very limited. So even if these um, alternatives did exist, they still have very, very significant harms and little freedom to be um, you know, successful because of the power that is given to Hollywood. Do you think that there's space for opposition to argue something like, well, the thing about Hollywood is that they really, really care about money, <laughs> saving money, making money. And a lot of these foreign films, they don't really, I wouldn't say they don't care about it that, as much, but there is a certain art form in making certain movies. Like, for example, Hong Kong Kung Fu movies, um, they do a lot of takes just to get the stunt right. Meanwhile, and Jackie Chan was the one who said this in an interview, he said that the, one of the biggest difference between shooting in Hong Kong and in the West is that in the West, they don't want to do those repeat takes. They're more likely to just say, oh, we'll put it in post, we'll edit it with CGI or whatever. Is there a way to argue that when those things are lost, like it does matter in the overall scheme of things? Yeah, I think so. Um, Especially when a lot of the people who, like let's say, feel like these stories um, are also representing themselves. 
um, they just lose connection whenever there's so much CGI or whenever they feel like the right people aren't representing the characters. So yeah, definitely like in terms of how valuable the art gets. And I assume that um, people will argue that the value of this film will be dependent on the people who consume it and how much they relate to it as well. Um, it, it will definitely affect that. So yeah, I think that's very cool. I think it's quite smart. So yeah. Thank you for thinking it's smart. But yeah, <laughs> um, this notion is really actually very dense in the pragmatic sense. Like you can talk about, as you said, representation um, versus getting some of it to a wider audience. You can talk about the quality of the product. You can also talk about how it affects Hollywood as an industry or foreign film industries. You can even talk about how originality would suffer if you're just remaking and remaking stuff. Like you, you ran out of stuff to remake in the West, so you're just getting some stuff from <laughs> from other continents to, to remake. But for you on government, for example, how would you argue in favor of those remakes? Like, what are the pragmatic benefits there other than the ones that you talked about earlier? I'd argue two things. Um, The first thing is that the film becomes more universal, or at the very least, the story of the film becomes more universal. Um, so from here, I guess like the general case line is to say that this requires, it does, does require a concession to the opposition argument where they're probably going to say that the story will be inaccurate. Um, and yeah, government does have to concede to that, that it will have potential inaccuracies in the film. However, on government, you have to reframe that and say that the art is better if it caters to more people. And that is why you will have to manipulate it like, into something that can be consumable by most. Um, and that's not because, let's say, that the majority of people are important and it's justified to um, you know, like isolate the rest. But rather to say that because you're able to have the general idea of it understandable to the majority, then technically there's just like this whole utilitarian effect of how many people are able to understand your story. And it's not a total inaccuracy, since obviously like with remakes, there's still a burden for them to um, still be the same story of the original film, since otherwise there's no point in making a remake if like you're going to um, change the story as a whole. So yeah, I guess that's another thing that you have to frame in this argument on government, that changes will be very minimal, so there's no significant harm to that in particular. Um, and from there, that's how you get it to be universal, consumed by more people, and basically more people hear the story. Um, and that leads to the second argument on Gulf, actually, about how it raises awareness on these foreign stories. And how this goes, I think, is to say that given social preferences, a larger audience is much more guaranteed with Hollywood, especially given the previous, um, like, characterizations we mentioned. So from here, I guess like it's just important to introduce discussions on like the things like let's say cultural and ethnic minorities that we don't usually hear about. Um, and they shouldn't be limited to the consumption of the people from these minorities or from these movements, but rather like to the general public. Because if they're limited to people who already know about it, then perhaps the film won't have that much impact. But second, I think it's just um, to say that it cannot be argued that the film Will be manipulated like again um so much otherwise there would have been no like purpose in the remake at all so i would just want to em emphasize that to say that these remakes to an extent will still carry the um general concept that the original film had so yeah those are just a few things i don't go on opposition on the other hand i think what you have to deal with is the idea from government that, well, if we don't do it, no one will find out about the original because like, you're not catering to a wide audience, at least for The Departed that brought more attention. Well, not that much attention, but like, it brought like marginally <laughs> more attention to Infernal Affairs, right? So I think my question now is for opposition, what would the alternative be? Because I think opposition would be arguing from a perspective of we need authenticity um we need actual representation like a lot of things are going to be lost in translation stuff like that so what would the alternative be just 
will opposition be forced to accept that not as much people will watch it? Or on a more positive note, do you think that opposition can argue that without Hollywood, it would actually be better for these foreign films? Yeah, I honestly agree with both of those statements. Like on opposition, um, films would have to gain an audience themselves. And I guess there are benefits to this, obviously, like for one, they get to tell their own stories, choose who they cast to tell those stories, or even just like give credit where credit is due, especially given the previous example that we've been stating where you don't really um, get the right people recognized. And from here, all of these are like meaningful, regardless of the success of the film and how many people view it. And this is where we somewhat respond to the previous argument on government, where we can say that the value of the film isn't dependent on um, making sure that the story reaches people, but rather making sure that the right story is told. And from here, I guess like there are many ways to like just explode this argument, to say things like, for one, um, a lot of the time, the small details in these stories, which will probably be like written out of the script because they aren't quote unquote universal, are things that are very um, like unique to the experiences of people who are able to relate to this film, people who are from that um, like you know foreign country and stuff. And like when that happens, I guess it's just to say that Hollywood isn't in the place to um, like decipher as to which of these quote unquote small details are actually small, because a lot of these like will probably be very re- relatable to people. Or when you just frame cultural minorities and like ethnic minorities in general, um, firstly it's probably difficult for Hollywood to understand what is valuable valuable to them. But second is that within these minorities or just like literally anything away from the West is that a lot of these countries are just factioned into places. So in terms of just like knowing um, how do you represent the majority of people um, who did relate to that story, um, I guess it's just to say that like, it's a good way to put this. Yeah, it's just to say that like, there's no way to rewrite it or there's no way to simplify it without like isolating a large chunk of people, just given all the fragmentation that you have in other countries. Yeah, so I guess the last thing that you can ask for this motion is that that was a lot to do with pragmatics, right? So I guess now, is there a principal discussion in this motion, like about the value of art, perhaps about the rights of Hollywood versus, you know, the rights of foreign film industries, that kind of stuff? Is there room for that kind of discussion? So I think like um, this does revolve around the question of whether it is morally good. Um, I guess I think probably the most general way of wording the question, and I think on Gov. The way you say that is to say, yes, it is morally good. And what are the standards for gauging that? Firstly, just the whole utilitarian effect, um, how it reaches the majority. Or second, how does it work when you start the discussion? Obviously, when you start the discussion, I think the main goal is to introduce people to these like problems or like these topics. And then from there, that is when they delve into it. Like That is when they look for it further. Um, but thirdly, um, on that discussion and gov as well, is just to say that this is much, much better than the alternative where they don't consume it at all. Because admittedly, like if you want people to care, the way you do that is to incentivize them to learn more themselves. So that is why introducing the general plot of the film is fine with the Hollywood remix. And then if people are interested, then that's where they go, like learning more about the issues, about the topics introduced in this film. It honestly, like the goal of Hollywood, you can say, probably wouldn't even be for these people to consume the original film, but rather to just know more about these issues in general, whether they Google it, whether they have like foreign affairs subscriptions and stuff. Um, all of these things just like fall under people gaining more interest. And you do that through having like a understandable story since it's like a 101 lecture, right? Like you don't introduce the most complex ideas to someone um, in their like first introduction to a topic, but rather just like the most um, general aspect of it. So I think that's like the gov thing to do, that it is morally good in that aspect. But on op, I feel like this is something that people aren't that familiar with, but rather like it like narrates the film film without the consent 
of the original filmmakers or like the actors involved in the film. Um, and I think like most people assume that there's like a partnership going on between Hollywood and the original film, but admittedly like that's never the case, especially since it won't be considered copyright or anything or plagiarism um, when you remake these since that is why you have to manipulate them and stuff. So yeah, from there, like it's not advisable or it's unethical because you're narrating the experiences of others. So that's the first thing. But second is that outside of like not having consent with the filmmakers and the people like acting in the film and stuff, you're also not having the consent of like the general majority of people who are able to relate to this film. So perhaps if this film again is about a like minority experience or something, then you don't really have the consent of everyone in that minority. So even if there was like in the best case of government, a partnership between Hollywood and um, the original filmmakers where they want to coordinate as to what is depicted here, you still don't have the um, consent from the majority of people. And given the previous frame about how, um, yeah, about how a lot of these countries are fragmented, then yeah, um, that's why like it's bad, it's unconsensual. So yeah, I think those are the principles for the debate. Yeah, that was very enlightening for me because I had also assumed that, you know, like the filmmakers at least have some rights to, you know, like they, they can lease it to Hollywood. So there is some sort of partnership, but apparently that's not really the case. So that's very interesting to me. Um, I guess that's it for the motions. Thank you so much for like this just enlightening discussion that we had. Um, so I guess the last thing that we ask for motion contributors in general is what advice would you give to novice debaters, whether they struggle with debate in general or art motion specifically? I guess just like remember that debate is an art, honestly. Like it sounds cheesy, but I think it's true. So that means that there's no right way to do it. There's no right way to define it. So just honestly, just like find your own style and what works for you as an artist or as a debater and eventually figure out how that style brings you to where you want to be. So whether you have specific dreams or goals in mind, and if that style helps you get you helps get you there rather, then that's exactly it. Work on it, because even if it's your own style, there are still ways to improve it. There are still ways to get the hang of it. And honestly, it will take a while to figure these things out. Perhaps, let's say, even like 50 speeches or 10 tournaments before you figure it out or years of debating. But honestly, that's totally fine, because um, I think novice debaters, regardless of like how old they are or how long they have been debating, um, have the concept of like time pressure on their like shoulders. Like if you're about to graduate high school or college, you'll feel like it is pressuring. Um, and honestly, like that's totally fine. Uh, but it's just the fact that regardless of how much time is left, um, you will always just learn along the way. And that's because you're trying to figure out your style and it won't always be reflected through speaker awards or breaking in tournaments or winning tournaments, but rather just like, are you proud of your speech or not? Or did you like your speech in general? Or did you have fun? Because admittedly, like that's what debate is and that's what art is. It's either you like it regardless of how much, how high will people rate it, or regardless of just like um what came out in the speech. Did you have fun? Because honestly, like if you had fun in debate, then I think like that you're probably on the right track. Because it means like you're not thinking too much about how it works, but rather just what do you want to come out in your speeches. And I think that's how you gauge like how fun something is, right? Like what you wanted to come out, did it come out? So yeah, um that's that's all for me. Thank you so much as well, by the way. Thank you so much. That, that was actually quite inspiring because that is why we started Debatable Media and I. That's why we started this. That's why we had these tournaments. It's not because we think that everyone should win something or whatever, but it's like we want to give people the opportunity to find their voice within the context of debate because Nina and I, we both realized that it is a really great way for us to find ourselves, to express ourselves, and so on and so forth. 
which is why what you just said really resonated with me. So thank you for that. And thank you for this episode. Um, and thank you to the listener for staying with us, I suppose. Yeah. So tune in for the next episode. That's it for now. Bye. Bye. Thank you.